This podcast is dedicated in honor of Yaakov Wolby. And no, I'm not referring to myself. In fact, there is a new Yaakov Wolby in town. This past week, my youngest brother, Mordechai, became the proud father of a baby boy. And this morning, they named him Yaakov after his wife, my sister-in-law's grandfather. If you may perhaps remember, last July, my wife and I flew to Israel for my youngest brother's wedding, and now they are parents, and they named their son Yaakov Wolby. And I wanted to say, as the world's foremost expert in Yaakov's Wolby, I want to wish this young baby the best of luck, and from my extensive experience, he'll probably need it. I also want to apologize ahead of time for ruining his Google search result rankings. But in all seriousness, mazel tov to Mordechai and Yocheved Wolbi, and may young Yaakov become a great Jew and a tzaddik who brings honor to his family and to the entire Jewish people. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Our sages tell us that Parshas Nitzavim, the most recent Parsha that we read, is always read the Shabbos before Rosh Hashanah, because Rosh Hashanah is the first of the Aserah Simei the first of the 10 days of repentance spanning from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. And because Parshas Nitzavim is the Parsha on Tshuva, on repentance, it's therefore a fitting introduction to the season of repentance, and we always read it right before Rosh Hashanah. So this evening, I would like to examine some of the narratives of this Parsha and try to extract several ideas that can make our days of repentance, and of course, our Yom Kippur, more meaningful and more efficacious. I want to begin with a question. Is repentance easy or is it hard? It seems to me that there is a blatant contradiction in the Parsha of Repentance with this particular question. So the first mention of repentance in Parsha's Nitzavim, it's chapter 30, verse 2, V'shavta ad Hashem alokach, you should return to Hashem your God, V'shamata bakolo, listen to His voice, hearken to His words, obey His mitzvos, Ata uvanecha, you and your children, with all your hearts and with all your soul. And Rebchaim Velazhner points out that this word formulation appears elsewhere in Scripture. Of course, we know the first verse of the Shema, the identical words used over here to describe true repentance are used to describe how much we have to love God. How much we have to love God? With all our hearts and with all our souls. And of course, Rashi there tells us, what does it mean to love God with all your hearts? With your Yetzir Tov and your Yetzir Hara, with your good and evil inclination. And what does it mean to love God with all your soul? Even if the Almighty takes away your soul. Someone, God forbid, puts a gun to your head and says, worship idols or eschew you. Of course, we love God more than we love our own life and we are required to bite the bullet. So here we see that the verse is employing 
identical verbiage for repentance. We should return to Hashem our God. We should repent with all our hearts and with all our soul. And what this tells us, says Rabbi Velazhner, that repentance is akin to self-sacrifice, to martyrdom. It is as difficult to repent as it is to forfeit our lives for God. Of course, the ultimate sacrifice that a human can do for God is to give up your life, give up everything. And here we're told that repentance is as difficult as self-sacrifice. When we repent, we have to walk away from our ingrained character and behavior. And to do that properly, that demands the same courage and the same resolve and the same intestinal fortitude as allowing oneself to die for God. Apparently, from the beginning of the parsha, it seems that to change yourself is very, very hard. I would surmise that anyone who has read Shari Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance, the authoritative book on repentance, and all the laws and all the draconian details of what constitutes legitimate, complete repentance, and all the things that inhibit repentance, you read that and you're like, oh wow, this is so difficult it's almost impossible. It makes sense. It resonates if we're told that it's as difficult as forfeiting your life for God. And then we fast forward to the end of the Parsha. And we read some of the most iconic verses in all of Devarim. Ki ha-mitzvah hazos, this mitzvah, lonely face it's not hidden from you, it's not distant, it's not in the heavens above, it's not across the sea. Ki karov elach ha-devar me'od, the matter is exceedingly close to you. There is a mitzvah. That's incredibly easy. It's already in your heart, in your mouth, to do it. And which mitzvah is being referenced here? So the Ramban tells us that this is none other than the mitzvah of tshuva, of repentance. So from the end of the parsha, it appears that repentance is astonishingly, exceedingly, inordinately easy. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart to do it. It's not in the heavens above. It's not across the sea. It's within you. So which is it? Is repentance supremely easy? It's already in your mouth, in your heart to do it. Or is it monstrously hard, difficult, as difficult as forfeiting your life? For God. So I heard recently that someone told me that apparently this question was posed to the Chavetz Chaim. Two people came to the Chavetz Chaim and they had this argument. Is Chuba's repentance easy or is it hard? And they said, well, go to the Chavetz Chaim and he'll, he'll arbitrate this dilemma. And he says to them in classic Jewish fashion, you're both right. And he gave an analogy, a marshal, to explain it. If someone's on a ship, and the ship is trying to go to a certain destination, and it heads off course, and it gets lost at sea, it starts going in the wrong direction, the opposite direction of its destination. And of course, sometime later, it clicks, you realize that you made a mistake, and you try to change course. So is it easy? Or is it hard? On one hand, it's easy. 
because you just update your coordinates. You make those changes. You turn the ship around, and that's easy. But now that you're so far from where you need to go, you have to travel back to to just get to the point of departure, and then and then you have to go the rest of the of the way to your destination. That long trek home, that is very difficult. Tshuva, of course, is about recognizing that we are distant from God. And making that critical realignment, updating the coordinates of our life's journey, that's easy. That part of tshuva is easy. But the journey home, the long, arduous trek all the way back to God, that is hard. Apparently, that is what the Chavetz Chaim told people when they were debating our question. I want to suggest two different interrelated answers to this question. And I think the ideas could potentially revolutionize how we see Yom Kippur and how we see repentance in general. I want to begin with a small introduction about what tshuva, what repentance is. So if you open up Shari Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance, that aforementioned book, or if you look at the liturgy, the prayers of Yom Kippur, it seems like tshuva, repentance, is very sin-centric. And we're told, if you want to repent, you have to stop sinning, and then you have to regret the sin, and you have to commit to never sin again, and you have to confess about the sin. It seems like the sin is the problem, and the repentance process is trying to combat and undo the sin. But it seems likely that there's something much more fundamental in repentance. My grandfather of blessed memory used to say that if you look at Parshas Shlach, you have the episode of the spies. Moshe sends 12 spies to go scout the land of Israel on a Canaan, and they spend 40 days reconnoitering the land of Israel, come back with a terrible, dreadful report. And the nation says, this is terrible. We can't go into the land. We'll be eaten up. Let's go back to Egypt. And of course, that changes the course of history. And for each day that they spent scouting the land, 40 days correspond to 40 days in the wilderness before the Jewish people could enter the land. But after that verdict is conveyed, there's the episode of the Ma'apilim. This is found in Bamidbar 1444. A group of people, a contingency of people that persisted, that they defiantly attempted to ascend to the land after the decree was conveyed. And Moshe says, don't go. God's not amongst you. And they insisted nonetheless, and they were all slaughtered. So my grandfather explained that these people they had a philosophy of what repentance is. They reasoned, hey, the spies, their sin was that they didn't want to enter the land and they wanted to go back to Egypt. Ergo, the solution is to go in the opposite direction, to insist upon entering the land, even though there are entailed danger. The remedy has to be the exact opposite of the melody. The spies didn't want to go into the land, and therefore let us insist to enter the land 
nonetheless. And they were slaughtered. Because at its essence, tshuva, the word tshuva means to return. It means to return to God. Of course, a sin is a barrier between us and the Almighty. And the more sins we do, the more distance we have between us and God. And therefore, we need to return to repent. We have to knock down those barriers. But the essence of repentance is to return to the Almighty. And the sin is the thing that caused the distance. So the spies commit a sin. And they are punished. Forty days result in forty years before you get to the land. But now the Almighty gives a new directive. He says, okay, my will is that now you spend 40 days in the wilderness. The essence of the sin is the distance, is the disobedience to God. And therefore, the way to rectify it is to start listening to the Almighty. And now the Almighty says, I want you to spend 40 years in the, in the wilderness. So an example of this. There's 10 days of repentance. Aserazi made shuva. 10 days of repentance. And you open up the Rosh Hashanah Machser and you look for mentions of sin. And the first two days of the 10 days of repentance, there is nary a mention of sin. And then, of course, you fast forward to Yom Kippur and 10 times over the course of Yom Kippur, we have these alchets, these prayers where we're trying to repent and to confess for 44 different categories of sin. We do that 10 times. And they're both days of repentance. How could these days be correlated in any way? The answer is, is that repentance at its root is returning to God. On Rosh Hashanah, we return to God in a more holistic, general way. We coronate him as our king. And we try to improve on the relationship between us and our creator. And that's the repentance of Rosh Hashanah. On Yom Kippur, we try to become close to God via a different angle, and that is addressing the sin that caused the distance between us and God. Repentance is the same. Repentance is the return to God. Rosh Hashanah is a more direct approach, and Yom Kippur is a more circuitous approach, namely trying to knock down all those barriers, barriers of sin. So let's go back to our original question. Is tshuva, is repentance easy or is it difficult? Well, now that we know that repentance is about achieving closeness, proximity to God, the process of repentance is thus trying to bridge the gap between man and the Almighty. And therefore, the degree of difficulty in achieving repentance is contingent upon the distance between the two. How hard is repentance hinges upon how much distance, so to speak, needs to be traversed. And here's the answer. We are composed of opposites. We have a body and we have a soul and they're fused together by divine mandate. And from the perspective of our body, there's nothing in the world that's more distant between the body and God. There's no commonality between 
our physical existence and the Almighty. The distance between those two, it's just unimaginable. But we have a soul. And there's nothing in the world that's as close to the Almighty as the soul of man. With our soul that we have within us, we're closer to God, we're more similar to God than even the angels. Talmud tells us that David has five prayers of Baruchi Nafshi, let my soul praise God, because there's five commonalities between the human soul and God. We're told elsewhere in the Talmud that the soul of man is as pure as the Almighty. We, from the vantage point of our soul, are exceedingly close to God. So is repentance easy or is it difficult? The answer is, is that by default, we act, we identify as our body. And in that mindset, in that state, repentance is unachievable. But if we change our mindset, if we identify as a soul, then we are already there. We already have all the connection we'll ever need. But to repent, we need to shed ourselves of the attitude and the identity of existing as a physical, ephemeral body. We have to cut away at the facade, at the body that is masquerading as our true identity. And that's a painful process. That's akin to martyrdom. We have to cut away at our existence, at our identity. But once we do that, what's the result? Once we identify as our true and lasting element of ourselves, our soul, our neshama, we recognize that we are already in close proximity to God and we have achieved repentance. In the Torah, repentance is described as circumcision of the heart. The Almighty will circumcise our heart. What this is revealing to us is that our heart, which is a reference to our soul, it's already close to God, but it's covered. And so long as it is covered, it might as well be in the moon. It's in the heavens. It's across the sea. It's inaccessible to us. But once we shed that faux identity, we discover that we already have everything that is needed to be close to the Almighty. It's just concealed. And to reach our goal, we have to peel away at the inhibiting factors and reveal our true self that was always there, lying latent and dormant and awaiting liberation. I think this is a helpful attitude for Yom Kippur. Is tshuva easy or is it hard? It's hard. Because we're not sober. We view our ephemeral body as our true selves. And that default is entrenched. And to get rid of that, it's, it's like giving up your life. Because that's who you are. That's how you identify. And to forfeit that is to like give up the thing that you consider you. But really, it's exceedingly easy because being in close proximity to the Almighty is our most natural state of being. I want to suggest another answer to this question. 
I want to look at this Parsha of repentance, Parsha Nisavan. I want to look at it holistically. And I want to suggest that perhaps repentance is more than a discrete, isolated activity. It's a process. So how does Parsha Nisavan start? Atem Nitzavim Hayom. You're all gathered here. Who? The heads of the tribe, the elders, the officers, every man of Israel, the men, the women, the children, the converts, the chotev eitzim, the woodchoppers, the water carriers, everyone's there. And the objective of this grand convention is to make a pact, a treaty, a covenant between the people and God. And not only the people that are present, even the future generations. And the deal is, the Almighty is going to be our God and we're going to be his people. But the problem is that there are dissenters. Maybe there's a man, there's a woman, there's a tribe that their hearts are going astray. We have some rotten apples. We have people who are enamored by the Canaanites, by the Egyptians, and they want to do idolatry. And what's the result of that? The land's going to be destroyed. And there's going to be devastation and desolation. It's going to be like the overturning of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we're going to be plucked out of the land, be'af, be'chema, be'ketz of Godal, with anger, with fury, with wrath, and we're going to be cast away to another land. But then something very dramatic happens. This is chapter 30, verse 1. It shall be, when all these things happen to you, the bracha, the claw, the blessing, the curse, you're going to take it to heart amid the nations that the Almighty cast you to. You're scattered. You're destroyed. You're beaten down. You're defeated. And you take the lesson to heart. Verse 2, You're going to return to God. You're going to hearken to His voice. Something is going to happen here that's a process. You're beaten down. You feel destroyed, you're scattered throughout the nations, and you hear the message. You take it to heart, and you repent. And that's going to kickstart a process, a continuum, a dramatic sequence of events. You return to God, and what do we read in verse 3? The Almighty is going to return your captives. He's going to have mercy upon you. He's going to start gathering you in from the four corners of the land. Bring it back to Israel. V'yerishta, you'll inherit the land of Israel. V'hitivcha, the Almighty will do good to you. V'hirbucha ma'avosecha, the Almighty is going to increase you more than your forefathers. Circumcise your heart. All the curses that were designated for you are going to be foisted upon your enemies and your haters. There's a process that's being unlocked over here. We sinned. As a result, we became distant from God. And we were punished. The land was rendered desolate. And now we're scattered. And we're distant from God in every way. Physically, materially, spiritually. They might have punished us. But this punishment, it acts as a nudge. He's giving us a jolt. Come return home. And we take it to heart. And we take one step towards God. We're amid the squalor. We're wallowing in the other nations. We're beaten down from the dispersal. And we have this murmur 
of repentance. And this punishment is going to act as an impotence for repentance. But what happens as a result? Us taking a step to God is going to unlock divine goodness. We turn towards him and he commensurately turns to us. And he gives us all kinds of benefits, all kinds of goodies. He's going to return our captives. He's going to give us mercy. The ingathering of the exiles, circumcision of our heart, the punishment intended for us is going to go against our enemies. And what happens next? The immediate following verse, Va'ata tashuv. There's a second verse of repentance. We shall return, V'shamata b'kol Hashem. And we'll listen to Hashem. V'sisas kol mitzvosav. We're going to do all his mitzvos. We started a process and we returned to God amidst the terrible, disastrous conditions. And the Almighty right away responds in kind with overwhelming, bountiful blessing. And we're so enamored, enthralled by God, we want even more closeness. We return to Him, He returned to us, and that's going to inspire us to want to return to Him even more. Vatatashuv will return even more. And what happens next? The very next verse, the very next Pasuk, it's going to lead to more abundance and more prosperity. Vahosircha make us abundant in all our handiwork, our progeny, our children, the animals, Privitnacha, Priadmasecha, Pribehemtecha, our produce. The Umay is going to delight over us. Which leads to the very next verse. I think this is showing us a new approach to repentance. It's not a discreet, isolated, one-time event. Okay, you sinned. Repent and move on. In this section, the critical section of the entire Torah that talks about repentance, repentance is mentioned three different times. Because there is multiple sequential repentances happening over here. Repentance is the transformation of our relationship. Recall, repentance is about coming close to God. We became distant. And something triggers a sequence of events. We're distant. We're amid the nations. And we return. We take one step to God. And that's going to kickstart that's going to send into motion this virtuous cycle. We have repentance. We initiated closeness. And that's going to beget the Almighty responding in kind. He is going to give us divine closeness, more blessing, more prosperity, more goodness. And that's going to beget more repentance. We want more closeness. And that's going to unlock another pivot by God in our direction. More prosperity, more closeness, more goodness, more blessing, which will inspire yet another round of repentance. So what this is describing here, again, is not a single discrete event, it's a process. And it starts with us taking the initiative, but that leads to the Almighty coming close to us, which leads to us wanting more closeness, and so on and so forth, getting closer and closer to God. So is repentance easy, or is it hard? When we're far away from the Almighty, and we're beaten down, and we're amidst the nations, and we've been punished, closeness to God is the most difficult thing in the world. 
It's indeed described aptly as being akin to martyrdom. The first step is very hard. It's self-sacrifice. We have to acknowledge our wrongdoings. It's a very painful experience. And at this juncture, we're very distant from him. It's like we're forfeiting our own lives. But that's going to kickstart a process that's going to progressively make it easier and easier. And finally, after all these successive layers of closeness, we read, Ki ha-mitzvah hazos. This mitzvah is very easy. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart to do it because once you are far down this road, it's indeed in our heart, in our mouths to do it. It's so easy. I, many years ago, read a book, like a business philosophy book called Good to Great by this business guru named Jim Collins. Now, sadly, this book did not stand up to the test of time because what he did in his book is he compared two companies, two publicly traded companies that were very similar at one juncture of their history. But then one of them departed, so to speak, the trajectory and became great while the other one stayed ordinary, but it stayed good. So he, every chapter, I think, takes two companies that are in similar industries and tries to discover what was the key that separated these two. And the reason why I didn't stand the test of time because he points to Circuit City, which is now bankrupt. He points to this company as being a model company for this transformation. But there's one idea that is a very powerful insight in his book. He describes a great business as akin to the pushing of a flywheel. You have this very heavy wheel and it's almost impossible to move it to make it, to make that rotation. But the system is designed that the kinetic energy of the first push goes into the second push. And therefore, the second push is easier than the first push because you have the momentum of the first push and the third is even easier and so on. And that's a great business to start it off to get your first customers and to make revenue very difficult. But once you have the momentum, it just gets easier and easier and easier. That's repentance. The first push on the flywheel, it's very hard. You're far from God. You're in a state of misery and helplessness. And that is indeed akin to self-sacrifice, to martyrdom. But once you have this momentum and you've had successive goes at this flywheel, you're unstoppable. And it's so easy because you already are developing this relationship. And the more you have this relationship, the more goodness you get from God and the closer this connection is and the more you want it and the easier it is to take the next step. I think this is the critical insight to make Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur more powerful, more efficacious, of course, these days of repentance. The Talmud tells us, the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 16b, that a person is judged on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur as per their deeds, as per their behavior at that moment. And the example that it brings is from Yishmael, from Ishmael. Why? And this is something we read in the first day of Rosh Hashanah. He is being sent away from Abraham and he's about to die because he's sick and the angel comes and shows Hagar where the water is and he is spared. And Rashi there tells us that the angels were lobbying God 
to not show the water to Ishmael because Ishmael is the father of the Arabs and then it cause untold hardship to the Jewish people. We have him on the ropes. Let's finish him off. And they might have said, well, what is the level of righteousness of Ishmael today? Today he's righteous. I'm judging him the way he is today and therefore we're going to save him. Now, there's a very famous question that's posed by the Maharsha in that particular Gemara. The Maharsha says, again, according to the Gemara, it's apparent that people are judged the way they are right now. So if they're righteous right now, then they're judged as being righteous. And he asked the question, there's another law in the Torah that seems to be the exact opposite. And that's the Ben Sorer Umore, the wayward and rebellious son that we read in Parshas Kiseitzai. And this is a young gentleman who does a specific set of acts. He steals money from his parents, buys some good meat and fine wine, eats it in bad company, and that person is executed. And the question is why? Someone's behaving maybe a little bit deviantly. He's a rascal. He's mischievous, a bit gluttonous perhaps. But this is not worthy of capital crime. So the Mishnah tells us in the book of Sanhedrin, Nidon al-Shem Salfo. He is judged, not the way he is right now, he is judged as per his future behavior. And in the future, the Torah is forecasting when someone has this unique cocktail of circumstances, they're an adolescent male, and they're stealing money from their parents, and they're being a glutton and hanging out with lowlifes, eventually this person is going to become a murderer. And therefore, we execute him now when he is still innocent. Because we know in the future he's going to be Guilty. So this seems, again, the exact opposite. By Yishmael, by Yishmael, we're told he's judged the way he is right now. By the Ben Soma, we're told he's judged the way he's going to be in the future. He's judged today as per the behavior of the future. So which one is it? So my Rebbe, Rabbi Asher Arieli, he gave an amazing resolution to this contradiction. Indeed, we are judged the way we are right now. But we're not judged the way we are right now in isolation. We're judged the way we are right now, assuming we stay on that same path, that same course, the same trajectory that we are we are on right now, and that's extrapolated over a lifetime. What would this person look like if they maintain their direction? What would they look like at the, at the end of their lives? And that's what they're judged today. So we have Yishmael. Ishmael. He's not a murderer right now. Right now, he's exhibiting none of the characteristics of his future crimes. Those things developed later. Whereas the Ben Saramora, already today, his behavior today, puts him on a path to being a murderer, and therefore he is judged the way he is today, but not just today in isolation, in a vacuum, today extrapolated over a lifetime. And therefore, these two regimes of punishment are not in conflict. Then my Rebbe pointed out something very powerful. The Talmud rules here that we are judged the way we are today, but extrapolated over a lifetime. So what about on the flip side? What if someone decides to take the first step of repentance? What if someone takes the first step of a journey that extrapolated over a lifetime will result in that person becoming a complete tzaddik. That that person is being judged today the way they would be 
at the end of the road. And of course, it's hard. Maybe it's even akin to martyrdom. But once we set out on the right course, the Almighty is going to extrapolate it to its destination, and we're judged as if we were already there. There's an amazing Rambam in the Laws of Repentance, Chapter 1, Law Number 3. And he's talking about repentance. And he says, now we don't have him as bad. We don't have an altar. We don't have any sacrifices. The only way we could fix our sins is via tshuva. And then he says, the the essence of Yom Kippur, mechaper lashavin. Yom Kippur forgives for those who repent. Now, there's a few questions. First of all, repentance works every day. And if I need repentance plus Yom Kippur, well, then what does Yom Kippur even help me? Moreover, you know, when we try to repent in Yom Kippur, there's so much. There's 44 different times that we say this and that's and 44 different categories of sin. Can we really repent for that in one day? Is that a reasonable ask? And here's the answer. The Ramam is clear. Lashavim. Yom Kippur repents not to people who repent for everything, for people who are returners, for people who are repenters. If we become a repentor, if we take that first step that, again, extrapolate over a lifetime will result in us becoming close to God, we are already judged as if we've completed that journey and we've fixed all our problems and we've achieved total closeness to God and therefore we're judged as if we're totally righteous. Indeed, Repentance is a long process. There's layers upon layers of progressively easier and easier instances of returning closer to Hashem, closer to the Almighty. But once we are a returner, we are already unlocking the forgiveness of Yom Kippur. You know, the symbol of repentance is the shofar. And you blow through the tiny, narrow end and then the sound emerges from the broad, wide end. This mirrors the process of repentance. You take that small first step, and yes, it may be very difficult, but once you start, you're starting this virtuous cycle, eventually that blast, so to speak, that effort that you started will emerge at the other end and result in a grand achievement of closeness between you and the Almighty. And of course, we acknowledge that it's very difficult. But we discover that this one small step on Yom Kippur, it's a very difficult step. It's very hard to acknowledge God amidst our spiritual squalor, whatever degree that we have uh, spiritual deficiencies in our, in our character. But once we do that first step, that's going to unlock this continuum that will ultimately result in it being very easy. And on this day, we're judged as if we already did the whole process. My grandfather used to say that Rabbi Israel Salanter, he said the following line. He said, if Yom Kippur came once every 70 years, then the way people would bless each other 
may you merit to see Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the accelerant. It's the day that provided we take that small step, it's difficult, yes, we take that first small step, that critical first step, it's already considered as if we've completed our entire journey and we have completely repented. So it's my blessing and hope to all of y'all that on this Yom Kippur, we take that step. And of course, it's not easy. It's not easy. No one likes to feel like they have made mistakes and the direction that they've undertaken in their life is flawed. And indeed, it's considered in Scripture to be somewhat similar to self-sacrifice, to forfeiting your life, because you do have to walk away from your current life. But then we discover that that first step is going to trigger the Almighty responding in kind and giving you closeness, taking a step towards you as well. And then on Yom Kippur, we have this magic where the Almighty says, you take that first step, that first step alone, we're going to extrapolate that of our lifetime. And if this process can feasibly result in you becoming a tzaddik, all the way at the end of that tunnel, at the end of that journey, you are already judged today as a complete righteous tzaddik. May we be so fortunate to indeed have all our sins expunged and expiated on this Yom Kippur and achieve closeness with the Almighty on this holiest and most auspicious day of the calendar, Yom Kippur.